0: I am back from my summer hiatus with a very special episode to kick off the fall season. But before I get to that, I want to catch you up on what I have been up to. Without a doubt, the highlight of my summer was a trip to France that included Paris, Nice, and a lovely little town in Southwest France called, and I am not making this up, condom. My trip exceeded all expectations. I visited museums, castles, and historic abbeys. I got to visit with a dear friend and make several new ones along the way. I ate cheese and bread without any of the inflammatory side effects I get at home, likely due to the much cleaner way they grow food over there. And I drank lots and lots of rosé. I was also inspired because that's what happens when I travel to Europe. I get very, very inspired. My greatest accomplishment this summer was finishing my book, Crafting Your Pitch, a storytelling framework, which is being edited and formatted as I speak. And fingers crossed, will be available for purchase by November, so stay tuned for more details. In between all of that, I focused on staying present, spending time with friends and family, and savoring each moment. Because really, the moment is all we have. As I was reminded of, this time with the news of the death of an NYU colleague who had also become a dear friend. Death has a way of reminding you that our time on this planet is limited and that life is really so random. While our years at Time Warner overlapped, it wasn't until Michael Diamond joined NYU in 2018 as academic director for the integrated marketing program that I teach in that we met. The university had already vetted him, but I decided to do some vetting of my own because that's who I am. I did that before I met him, so I reached out to a former Time Warner colleague who knew him. Alan told me that Michael was one of the smartest people Alan had ever met. And Alan was right. Michael was that and so much more. Technically, Michael was my boss, but he quickly became my friend. He had grandiose ideas how to build and improve upon the master's in science programs in integrated marketing and PR, and an enthusiasm that matched. Now, I admit to being a little skeptical how much he would be able to accomplish. I had already spent five years in academia at that point and was well-versed with the snail's pace at which things can be changed. But Michael, with his smarts, his business acumen, and his infectious enthusiasm proved me wrong. He made the program better. He made us all better. I learned early on after I met Michael to plan on our conversations going longer than scheduled. We were both talkers with lots of opinions, many of which we agreed upon and some we did not. But that was one of the many things I loved about him. He liked to spar, as do I. And we were both always able to walk away from a difference of viewpoint and still maintain our mutual respect. He would have loved to hear about my trip to France, and he would be so excited for me about my new book, no doubt plotting and planning how the university could support it. That is who he was, always supportive and encouraging. There is one incident I will never forget. When Michael coerced me, and just like he did many times, coerced me into sitting on different committees. This time it was a search committee for new faculty. At the end of one particular meeting, someone in the room remarked that Joanne liked to, and I quote, complain. Before I had a chance to respond to what at the time I found rather offensive and uncalled for, Michael jumped in. He said he disagreed. I don't think Joanne complains. She just wants to make things better. I've never forgotten that, not just for his support in that moment, but because his words were the truth. I'm all about trying to make things better. And he got it. He knew who I was. He understood me. Michael passed on July 13th. If this language bothers you, I will apologize in advance, but seriously, fuck cancer. How in a world that creates artificial intelligence that can mimic humans and can send rocket ships into space and beyond, we still can't come up with a cure for this dreaded disease is beyond me. And if I sound angry, I am. Michael was just 57 years old, far too young to be gone so soon. So as the fall semester is getting underway, I I realized how strange it feels knowing he will not be there, that I can't pop into his office on the fourth floor and see if I can get a few minutes of his time to catch up, even though in the case of us, a few minutes would always turn into at least a half an hour, if not an hour. Just last fall, we recorded episode number 71 for this podcast. The purpose was to highlight a research study on how brand social values are impacting marketing that he had just completed with Milos Bushik, which I'm sure I did a terrible job on your name again, Milos, and I apologize, and Jennifer Scott. After we were finished recording, we talked about what was then his recent diagnosis. He was so positive and so determined to fight the cancer. I truly believed he would win the fight. And I hate being wrong. I wanted to hear that enthusiastic voice, so I decided to listen to the episode again. And there it was. As was often in my conversations with Michael, we meandered beyond the study, his own corporate and theater background, to some powerful career advice. In his honor, what follows today is a replay of that episode. As you listen, I hope you will not only take in his wisdom and advice, but also the enthusiasm and positivity he had for life and sprinkle a bit of that into your own. My guest today is a marketing and communications thought leader, executive and consultant, He has worked in both London and New York, holding various positions in strategy and business developments for companies that include Booz Allen, Time Warner, and Time Warner Cable, where he was chief marketing officer. He has served as the academic director for the Masters of Science programs in integrated marketing, PR, and corporate communications at NYU, where he is currently a clinical assistant professor and where he recently co-authored a study on corporate social values, which we will discuss today. Welcome to the podcast, Michael Diamond. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure, and I've been looking forward to it for a while. And and I forgot to add in there that he's also a friend, so there you go. Um, So let's start with my favorite question. And in your case, it's very interesting. Where are you from?
1: Um, well, I love that question, I guess, because the obvious answer is uh, some sort of geography and and I will mm-hmm. I will answer that straight, which is I was born in the Northeast London, uh, in a in suburban London, let's put it, and I grew up uh, through undergraduate living uh, in England and you know, away for college. And then I spent most of my adulthood except for uh four years or so, but most of my adulthood I've been spent uh, living in and around New York City. Um, currently live in Connecticut. Uh, but I think there's also sort of um, an interesting other answer to that question is, you know, I was raised very much to be a sort of globally minded, socially minded person. And I know I've lived and uh, worked in many different cities and countries around the world. And I've always felt some way of, you know, making a connection with those geographies. And, and I, so I think a lot of us are, um, you know, and it's probably even more true for millennials and Gen Zs, you know, we feel we're. Sort of part of a global world, or a, we're, we're citizens of a much broader geography than just
0: where we were born. So, yes, and I'm sure no one figured out that you were a Brit right. um, by just listening to your Um So, I always say that, you know, Brits can tell you to go jump in the river and it sounds delightful. Right. Um, it's like, okay, thank you. That, that's so. So, I have so many questions, but I want to start with the 2022. Corporate Social Value Index study that you just published on the relationship between a brand's perceived social values and customer relationships. I hope I got that right. Did I get that right? hmm Absolutely. Okay. So, so what ignited the idea to do this?
1: Well, I think there's a lot of discussion in the marketing field today and more broadly within the business environment about what the role of a corporation is uh, today in society, in the economy, et cetera. And I think as everybody knows at this point, there was this very specific sort of model of a company, uh, you know, furthered in the nineteen seventies by the economist Milton Friedman that said, you know, a company exists for one purpose only, and that's to create value for its shareholders. Uh, ie profits, you know, profits and return on equity or return on capital, whatever, and you know everything else was sort of sublimated to that. And lots of companies, you know, got into very um, extensive financial planning and strategic planning to figure out how to maximize, you know, returns for shareholders. And what we obviously saw, I think we all saw together uh, during, you know, the seventies, eighties, nineties, etc., was that that model might not. Be serving society or the broader environment um, that well, and that it ended up creating lots of haves and have-nots. And companies started to ask themselves whether they had potentially a different role in society. And so this shift, which is somehow sometimes been called stakeholder capitalism, or purpose-driven marketing, or purpose-driven business leadership, or you know, it comes under a number of different titles was something we wanted to better understand in the context of our domain, which is marketing and consumer insight. So, you know, what really led us to initiate the study was this question about what is that relationship between a brand's social values, or at least the perceived social values they hold, and then consumer social values, and how is that impacting or different to what they think about the product, the core product benefits of the brand, you know, so trying to get behind the equation of of what drives choice for consumers in this world in which we see companies acting in more sort of stakeholder or broader societally positive ways in which we know or understand that consumers and employees indeed are more interested in the sort of values of the companies they do business with.
0: Well said, my goodness, but I expected that. So like most things in marketing, you ask five different marketers how to define something and you'll get five different answers. So how did you define purpose-driven marketing for the basis of this study? Well,
1: it's it's an absolutely fascinating question. I I really like this question because one of the challenges is that the word purpose is used and abused, you know. And, you know, there was a, a wonderful book by Jim Stengel, I think it's at least 10 years ago, called Grow. Uh, I hope I get that title right. We'll have to fix that if I didn't. But but his book was about essentially purpose-driven companies. But what he asserted at that time was much more this idea that companies – needed uh, a reason for being, you know, so, sometimes that's called a North Star, you know, that a company in order to be successful, and he, and he tracked uh, a whole bunch of companies and looked at their financial valuations, their growth rates and all that sort of thing. And he identified that those that had this very clear, very well articulated reason for being were much more likely to be successful. That That is one sense of the word purpose. And in, And for a long time, that's That's what a lot of people meant. It was tied to mission and value, not values, but sort of mission, vision. You know, it was like, "What's our purpose? Why do we exist in the world?" I think that that term has then got co-opted, and almost exclusively, when you hear it now in you know marketing forums or 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 conferences or what have you, it really means socially driven um, programs. It, It means you know, what's your purpose with respect to changing? know, one of the great ills of society, whether it's, you know, political uh, divisiveness, whether it's um, climate, whether it's to do with race, race, whether it's to do with social justice, you know, it's really purpose is now meant to to be closer to things like ESG and CSR, you know, so those, what's happened is these things are sort of merged, uh, whereas, you know, CSR was a slightly more mechanical um, legal sort of uh, reporting framework, and then ESG, obviously taken up by the United Nations. Um, that's all merged together, I think. And when people talk about purpose-driven marketing, they mean they they principally mean, you know, um, what what kind of good are you going to try and do in the world? I, I think is what is what they're saying. And 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 you know, less cynically, how does that tie into business growth, and how does that align with? the values of your consumers and 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 your stakeholders, your suppliers, your employers, et
0: cetera. So. There you go. All right. And, and on a similar vein, how did you define social value? Because that is the indexes, if I'm correct, that you used in here.
1: Yeah. Well, we looked, we basically looked at 11 different values and I will try and recall each one by name, but if not, uh, I, I can do a <laughs> follow-up. But we looked at 11 different values that consumers had Sorry, we looked at we we asked the question which is, how much do you think um, each brand cares about, and then we listed these eleven different social values, um, and we were looking at things like um, you know questions of uh, climate and questions of uh, sort of social justice and things like that, and so we we were attempting to do two things. One was to understand how important they were to the consumer so it's how much do i care about those things and then also to ask those questions about how much they thought brands they had to be familiar with the brand of course but we found 90% of the the uh, brands 100% of people were familiar with if, if you know what i mean so we didn't have a lot of trouble you know lining up people to answer these questions but we asked them about their perceptions of the brands and again you could you could critique the study or at least ask of the study all right well that's just consumers' perceptions. What if the pro? What if really they're doing all these wonderful programs and nobody knows about it? That, of course, is a separate marketing problem, that or PR problem, or whatever <laughs> right. it is. You know, but at least what we were asking is, what is your perception of their brand? Uh, and then we were doing the math, obviously, to say how much does that align with your? Uh, you know, how how do those two numbers align? And then we were also doing the math in the background to some other questions. That we asked them about their relationship to the brand, likelihood to buy, you know, their their more general consideration of the brand. Um, and so that was kind of what we're trying to understand: is 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 how strong is that alignment between your social values and your perception of a corporate social value? How strong uh, is that alignment with respect to how much you would buy the brand, or you know, more generally, how do you respect the brand? So
0: I, you know i didn't i didn't ask you this before but could you talk about who did you uh, use as your as your study group who were the people that you that were actually responding to this
1: so we worked with a company that manages a, a large panel of consumers across the us and we spoke to 2500 consumers we tested it we tested the whole survey with 500 consumers just to make sure we got the instrument what they call the instrument correct and then we went out and filtered it to 2500 uh, us consumers that were balanced to get to give us a you know what we could say would be a you know a proper um a proper uh, you know sample of 18, i think it was 18 plus uh, U.S. you know U.S. consumers, and we 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 tried to get you know a variation in geography. Uh, we would wanted to ensure we had a variation in terms of politics and ideology and things like that. So that that's where some of the richness in the study, I think, will come out over time. is digging into those different categories.
0: Yeah. So one of the key takeaways was that customers have a stronger relationship with brands with social values that are perceived as matching their own
1: yeah I I think at some level it's intuitive in the sense you know we've always talked and you're obviously a brand expert so I, I I speak with some humility here but you know you you've always talked about uh you know when when we've worked together on things like personal branding you know brands are an expression of uh, an identity it could be the company's identity but when you consume the brand you clearly in many cases it, it becomes part of your persona your identity you know um you know the the car you drive, the food you eat, the restaurants you go to, the music you listen to, whatever it is, um, it's all part of your your personal brand and and the way people evaluate you, judge you, perceive you, et cetera. So I think it's a pretty, pretty well established fact that, you know, um the brands we consume and and use and and, and interact with are part of our personal identification or personal identity i should say and so in that sense it's probably not a big leap to say then excuse me then that there should be it's likely that um you're more likely to be drawn to brands who you, whose social values you think are similar to yours or you know uh, reflect yours or or somehow you know amplify what you want to put out in the world um Easy to be critical and say it's all woke washing and virtue signaling and all those kind of things. But you know, the facts remain, despite you know, the core venal nature of, of us all at some point in life, you know, we are still trying to project a good image of ourselves and 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 think we believe the things we believe. And so, you know, the brands we use and um, you know, the labels we attach to ourselves, so to speak. Uh, if they align with our own values, you know, that's clearly going to be a, a stronger match, a stronger affinity.
0: Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, I've noticed that anecdotally. I certainly noticed it in myself, which is, you know, not a basis to make any big broader discussions. But, but the fact that it came up in the data, I found I found that really, it, the, it supported what I personally was already seeing or hearing hearing in the marketplace. Now, I did find it fascinating that product benefits were less important than social values,
1: yeah. i think I think that's a really, in a way, a key insight. you know, it, it's it's a um it's it's a moment in the analysis that certainly makes you pause. you know, now we are, in fairness, the the data at this level that we've reported out is is aggregated across all U.S. consumers, and and I should. Before I go on, give a huge shout out to Milos Bugisic, who led all of this research. Who's a, a PhD in our in our department, and Jennifer Scott, um, who is also was was a faculty in our department, who helped us craft and shape the story. So I want to make sure we don't get too far into this conversation. Um, I'm I'm the mouthpiece uh, for today, but uh, the two of them, obviously, very critical components.
0: I'll I'll make sure they're all in the show notes. So. Yeah,
1: and and Milos led the research, but back back. Back to sort of the the question, which is, you know, it, it it could be so we're reporting data out at a national, you know, an aggregate level, yeah. So obviously, there will be pockets where you know one brand, one group will, you know, find more f- the functional value in products and services, and then indeed, I think the results we reported showed, for example, that you know, sort of more. Um, more uh less well-to-do consumers were more aligned with product benefits you know so there was this sense perhaps Mm. and again one of the areas where you could sort of critique not the research but the the general sort of uh, movement which is look if you don't have any money and you need uh you know a product you're going to buy the one that works and the one that you can get most reasonably in terms of cost you know um and and there are some arguments that have been made that you know not all products need social purpose and things like that you know so i think that that was one finding where where you know in av- on average across the us we found that there was a much more significant statistical relationship between this alignment around Uh, Social values, then there was an alignment around product benefits. And that, you know, I don't want to say that was just the math because that's to to beggar the insight. The insight is a powerful insight, but that's what the math showed us at the level of the total US population for the 75 brands we looked at. And, And again, I think there's some of that is intuitive, or you could argue that many brands are operating in a space where, you know, the functional benefits are relatively well known. May not be that differentiated from a competitive product and service, and so you know these other factors, which we've always known about, sort of these emotional, uh, you know, um, or what they call affective, you know, with an a affective qualities. Those kind of things start to play into your brand decisions, and so what we're suggesting is that these social values now is is one really to keep an eye on and and it is more important on average across the 75 brands and the 2500 consumers than um the relate you know the product benefit and the match on the product benefits.
0: Yeah, you know I was just thinking as you were talking you know we're kind of seeing some of that play out in real time with what um just went on with Adidas and right. even the question of how long it took them to dissociate themselves from Kanye or Yi is I believe he calls himself now. So um, and it really took over. It took over the conversation.
1: Yeah, and I think you know it's arguable that if Adidas had a much clearer. Uh, understanding and articulation of their social values and what they stood for, and a better understanding of their consumers, they would have got to a quicker decision. You know, they would have just said, "You know, this this breaks all norms. Is not what we stand for. Not what our consumers would expect of us as a brand. We're done." You know, so I I think the you know they were they did it. They did it in the end. They were bold to do it. It was it's well, not bold, but it was important that they did it. But they did appear to take too long. And yeah, I that's
0: think and again, it's
1: true. It's a, it's a great example, Joanne. I think it's a great example. You know, and there are several. You know, both those who are taking leadership in the space, um, and then also those who are hesitant to participate, or those like Disney, you know, who sort of dithered for a while, and 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 that, you know, and that caused them some backlash. Um, and you know, if we're being candid, you you and I grew up in an entirely different world when we were, you know, leading marketing teams or sales teams and things like that, and. It's a very, very complex world now, you know, like the idea of navigating all of these different constituencies and uh, agendas and stakeholders, uh, you know, arguably existed in the past, has always existed, but the, the rise of things like social media, and I think just a general sort of change in society's attitudes towards authority and all sorts of different things, you know, obviously the dissemination of information, it's just made this world much more vibrant and made it such that leaders, business leaders and marketing leaders need to be much more alert and on top of all this stuff.
0: No, they really do. And again, because of the background that both of us had, even though we actually didn't work together at Time Warner Cable, I guess I should put that in there, our time overlap. But it's about money. Because again, you're, you're still companies. And when you think about the way we were operating to the way we are now, it, you know, the money drives the decisions, not necessarily who we were working with and that that's all changed but they did and again i don't remember how much money it was but it was a huge number that dropping this deal with uh for for the sneakers
1: um i think you know these are big companies i uh you know many of them are public companies they have boards of directors they have you know rules about governance and and the authority any single officer holds you know so clearly you have to be able to deliberate and act um you know appropriately but those things can be done at speed if if you have a very good sort of north star i think you know
0: yes and i think they have to be done at speed anymore because you have to be able to make the right decisions and do them quickly and and that is that is definitely an effect of social media. OK, so traditional brands, which we never talk about anymore because, I don't know, they seem to get lost in the conversation. But you, uh, Toyota, LG, and General Electric dominated these rankings. So I found that really interesting. Can you talk about that?
1: Yeah, well, I, I think, you know, that they are mass market brands, um, you know, that uh, – that are very well known across a large spectrum of the of the population you know and i think they um have uh you know a combination so that the 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 rankings that get you to toyota lg and general electric are actually the the brands with the total what we'd call the total match yes um so it was not just the social values match it was also the match on product benefits as well so you know that that's the ones that are uh, the agglomeration. And I think what it represents is it's large brands, you know, with a relatively deep consumer uh penetration, uh, who have broadly, you know, uh proven their merit in society and also through their product, uh, you know, the 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 way that they've delivered on their product benefits. Um, so it didn't surprise us necessarily that they came out on top uh in terms of the general ratings. Um and we are, you know, our work now is to sort of dig in a bit more deeply on each of these brands and try and actually understand um what what's going on. There was a different ranking if you looked only on social values. And looking only on social values, you've got brands like Apple um and PayPal and UPS interestingly at the top. So you know there's lots of insight that needs to be unpacked here. Um, but, uh, it, it's clearly, it's clearly, you know, it, and, and a lot of, a lot of what, what would be interesting work to look at is the perceptions of the brands versus their actual social programs. Mm-hmm. And we're talking to a couple of other researchers about this, the areas that they're interested in, you know, looking at branded social programs, um, to, to understand, you know, what kind of impact those programs themselves are having on people's perceptions. So.
0: Yeah, it is. But, you know, what didn't surprise me was um, how low Facebook and Meta ranked. Right, right. Although yeah. you did have an annotation in there that it could be because of them a, a, slightly shifting the brand. But I, I, I'm yeah. not buying that part.
1: <laughs> no, I think I think unfortunately, you know, and I say unfortunately in the sense. Well, I'm not sure why it's unfortunate, but it's the case, I guess, that, you know, some of these big social media brands, and probably Twitter's about to fall into that category too, you know, are just are just not well trusted by consumers and haven't probably demonstrably done enough to, uh, you know, demonstrate that their values are aligned with those of consumers. And, and I think they're probably even harder brands to find that match because you've got sort of the corporate entity and what it does in the world. But then obviously like a newspaper or a television network, you've got all the content that goes on in the in the in the in the brand itself or under the moniker of the brand. And so consumers are probably responding both to sort of the stuff they see online as well as what does this brand quote unquote, stand for as a co- as a company. So you know it's it's possible again, we we would have to dig some more into that a in scenario to look at, but it's possible that, you know, th- those two things are getting conflated, it c- could get conflated for media brands, for example. Um, you know, it may be that Wall Street Journal does incredibly wonderful things in a social, progressive, you know, way for employees and for, uh, you know, its neighbors and all that, and yet report the news very conservatively, you know, so, so the question would be, can you, <laughs> excuse me, can you disentangle, um, you know, that? I. I do want to go back to one thing we were talking about, which is about the money, because I've always been very deeply impressed, and and I guess requires a, a bit more study, with the decision that CVS took several years ago, um, a, 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 when they got out of selling cigarettes, and that was a two billion dollar business for them, and they said, look, we we stand up in front of the public every day and say we're all about your health, we're all about your health, you know, we we cannot be a company selling cigarettes, known carcinogens, et cetera, and still make that claim. And, and I thought that was an extraordinarily bold and brave move. And, and they haven't, you know, they haven't suffered for it as far as I can see. There's not, you know, they merged with Aetna, et cetera. But, but, you know, that that sort of thing, I think there are, or Patagonia more recently, basically giving itself away to a, a charity and saying that, you know, that's our future. I think that, you um, you know, the boldness of the action, there's the difference between, they sometimes say there's a difference between a gamble and a risk. Yes. And and a gamble is something that you, you literally have no clue. You're just like throwing the dice, like who, you know, and those decisions aren't smart business decisions, you know, but, but just, but decisions, um, or, or generally, let's put it certainly in the environment of a corporate board and all that sort of thing, but risks where you're saying, look, you know yeah there's there's one side of the equation which says we might lose some money and revenue and profit but the other side of the equation says this is what we stand for and and people will buy more because we we believe that i think that happened with uh, sales of guns you know post um i forget whether it was directly after george floyd or you know it was after some instance that uh, Dick Sporting Goods uh, gave up the sales, you know, of, of guns, and I, I just, I just think, uh, and I, I hope I'm correct on my history there. Someone will correct me if I got that slightly wrong, but the, I think there no, are no. But you're
0: right. Yeah, you're right on that. I
1: believe. Yeah, it. decisions that big companies make that appear risky or appear sort of financial, you know, uh, putting some financial resources at risk, but hopefully somebody on the other side of that equation is making the argument, which is. Which our study would support strongly, which is actually people are interested in our social values. That's why they're buying from us. And they want to know that we're acting in alignment with those social values.
0: No, you know, I, and what the other brand that came to mind when you were saying that was Nike when they yep. stood by Colin Kaepernick. I forget yep. how many years ago it was now, yep. it's just not that long ago. And people were like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm never going to shop with them again. And Conversely, their their sales went up. They yeah. knew who their they knew who their customer was, and it did yeah. it fit in with what their brand was. But at the time, you know, everyone. Well, in today's world, everyone has something to say about everything. I'm I'm yeah. of the belief that if Mother Teresa was still alive, that somebody on Twitter would have something nasty to say about her. So that's um, kind of where we are. So, what did you find the most not- right. noteworthy? Well, or what surprised you the most about your findings?
1: Well, I think I think we highlight this a little bit. You know, there was, there's a section around luxury brands that I thought was kind of interesting and definitely needs a bit more work. Uh, and I think it's something to do with the fact. So the results basically were luxury brands actually sort of did relatively badly uh, in our in our search. You know, um, Rolex and and LVMH and others. Uh, you know, they 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 sort of came out. Um, you know, at the bottom, so to speak, of of the list. And you know, my general sense, or they said I'll. General sense is that um, that has something to do with the fact that they're not mass market brands. You know that they aren't necessarily uh, perceived. Uh, that, you know that they're probably not as well um, understood by by a broad mass market audience, and or the reasons that people buy them are, are are quite distinct and unique. You know that they, in fact, even in economics, there's a a famous uh, I think it's the, is it the Vaben effect where, you know, the more expensive something is, the greater the demand, you know, which is even the reverse, you know, of the traditional downward sloping demand curve. So, you know, I think there's a lot of intriguing things about luxury brands that I would like to understand better. Um, and we're also trying to uh, d- dig a bit deeper into sort of consumer segments and clusters, you know. So I found some of the correlations between, uh, you know, age and income or, you know, um, geography and political ideology, th- those sort of results uh, are where we're going to dig in a lot more and and see if we can create some sort of consumer segments, for example, that uh, we could sort of profile and understand better. Because I, ultimately, you know, Milos and Jennifer and I want the work to be uh, of value to businesses and brands, you know, to use as mm-hmm. a tool. So...
0: Well, that's so interesting because I was going to ask you what can marketers do with this data, but I guess you're already working on that part on how they can yeah. use this as a tool. Well, and
1: any marketer is, who's a friend of yours uh, or a listener to your podcast is very welcome to reach out to any one of us. I think at the back of the report are our names, but you know, I'm, I'm easy to reach at michael.diamond.nyu.edu. And we'd love to talk to brands. And we, you know, if you're one of the 75 brands that we covered, then we have quite a lot of detailed data we can share. Um, but we're also happy to sort of try and figure out how to do similar work uh, for other brands, or to, or just talk about the results more generally. But, you know, I think the insight, we were, you know, quite delighted, of course, that folks as eminent as Jim Stengel, the former CMO of P&G, and Antonio Lucio, the former CMO of HP, Visa, and and indeed Facebook, you know, all have come out and said, you know, not only is this a, a good work, but it's, it's it's valuable to industry, you know, so it's so, you know, and I think that those two have led some of these discussions, but I appreciated the support for the research. Yeah.
0: No, I think I think the timing is impeccable on it. I don't think that you could have picked a better time for it to uh, put this out into the world. So it'll be interesting to see what happens next. So I just want to uh, switch for a minute to career because we both teach. So we're both hopefully impacting our students positively. I, at least I like to think that I'm doing that and I know you are. Um and I often find that students, you know, these are graduate students that we teach right now, they want the direction of their life to be crystal clear. And know exactly what they're going to do in not the next, whatever happens in the next five years that they think is going to determine every aspect of their career moving forward. Now, my own trajectory did not work like that because I've had, I think, three reinventions now or something like that. And I want to circle back to your own background because you have an MBA from the London Business School and an MFA from Yale Drama, which I'm very impressed with both. It's obvious to me, or at least it seems somewhat obvious, how the NBA has influenced the work you do now. But I'm curious about the degree from Yale. Um, I'm, I'm making an assumption here that it it has helped you in both aspects. But can you talk about that?
1: Yeah, I'd love to, and I and I want to make sure I come back to the general question as well about you know managing your career. So let's 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 uh, let's talk about that as well. But yeah, so I I think I am you know, what I've discovered is not unlike many people, which is, you know, you start out life as a young man or young woman, and you're interested in lots of different things, you know, and then unfortunately, the education system sort of tells you, and certainly in the UK, maybe a little less so here in the States, um, is, you know, oh, well, you're a science person or you're a arts person, you know, um, and it sort of directs you down a, a path, Uh almost forcing you in some ways to sort of give up certain things and you know uh, and so i you know as the poet says i have always believed we contain multitudes you know and i and i've always wanted to try and explore those different aspects of my life and when i was a young man i was passionate or still am but you know i was particularly passionate about the spoken word and literature and the theater and poetry and that's what i studied as an undergrad at university and i got very involved in the theater (laughs) Uh, when I was an undergrad, and both acting and directing, and then I went on to produce some shows. And I thought to myself, oh, well, this might be a career, you know, like, oh, if if there's a business in which you can make theatre and, you know, raise money and market theatre and all of that, I want to do that. Um, I wasn't a very good actor. I knew I'd never survive as an actor. But uh, so Yale uh, Drama School has a wonderful program uh, in theater theater management, you know, and the wonderful thing about studying theater management at Yale is it's actually within the conservatory of drama. So, you know, there's there's, there's the Yale Repertory Theater, which is a professional theater company. Um, and then there's the Yale School of Drama or now the David Geffen School of Drama at Yale. And that program trains people across all of the disciplines within the theater. So writing, acting, directing, stage managing, production, design, technical, all sorts of things, including theater management. So it was a wonderful opportunity to learn the business of theater within the context of, you know, creative, uh, you know, of of uh, cre- making art, making theater together. What did I learn? <laughs> well, I learned, <laughs> excuse me, I learned a few things. Um, I learned about how to work with other people to bring initiatives together. You know, the the theater is a very collaborative enterprise, and it it really really demonstrates every night, you know, the power of what a team of people can do. I also learned this idea that the show must go on. You know, I've said many times in my life when we have projects and deadlines, you know, the curtain goes up at 7.30 p.m., we just got to be ready. You know, we we got to have our best and we got to be ready. There's no like, well, can I just delay another 20 minutes and can I just delay another hour another day? You know, obviously it happens from time to time that shows get delayed, but there's an ethic about the theater, uh, about the show must go on. And, um, and sometimes that's with very limited rehearsal time. You'd be surprised, you know, some shows are staged uh, with very limited rehearsal time. Uh, movies, it's probably even less, I guess. But, but you know, they're, 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 they're that that I thought when I moved in the world of administration, so I left. Yale and got a job at Manhattan Theater Club, I probably learned two new things. One was um, the role of mentorship and how important that was. I had some wonderful, wonderful bosses, a, a man called Barry Grove, who was the managing director, a woman called Janet Harris, who's my immediate boss who ran development when I, when I joined the, the company. And they were both extraordinary mentors, you know. and it was clear to me how important that would be throughout my life and how when I got a chance, I should pay that back. And then the other thing I think was the value of um, advisors and board members and you know outside counsel and you know and we we happen to have a very uh, good board uh, at Manhattan Theatre Club where I, where I where I worked and they brought all sorts of insight and access to resources and as they say in the traditional fundraising world time talent and treasure. Uh, but I was, you know, my job was to, was to raise some money, but, you know, my interest obviously was in their talent and, and, and it was a wonderful, uh, it was one of those, it was one of those experiences where you recognize immediately how much you have to learn and how, you know, looking outward um, into because these people, you know, were typically not, in fact, none of them, I think were really. Uh, theatre people—they came from Amex, so they came from big banks, so they came from you know big accounting companies, whatever. They were sort of well-to-do um, and and theatre-oriented uh, uh, business leaders, and but they brought this incredible set of skills with them. And so I learned a lot just of the idea of navigating for you know navigating among that group, um, and and you know the passion and the love of the theatre and the written word hasn't disappeared. That's still there. Uh, but I learned these extra sort of lessons uh, about business and 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 uh, projects and initiatives.
0: Yeah, it's it's um. I, again, I don't think a lot of young people realize that. So I constantly am trying to get it through their heads that no matter what you do, there's always a place for it. Yeah. You know, there are things that I do today that that I learned literally in my first sales job selling country music radio that helped me yeah. today that I wouldn't have put the two together? How's that going to help me if I'm teaching down the road at NYU?
1: Well, and I I would add one other thing, which maybe is an additional lesson, and it's particularly true, say, for an internship. So when I first went to Manhattan Theatre Club, I was an intern, I finished my degree, and then I went back there full time. But one of the things I remember, and I've described this experience to others, in fact, to the internship class I I teach, is my job as an intern when I was first at Manhattan Theatre Club, was actually as as the assistant to the managing director. I answered his phone. I opened his mail. You know, I booked his schedule. So you could say, "Wow, you know, you're paying all that money to go to Yale, and that was all you did as an intern." But a couple of things were true. One, he was enormously generous with his time. You know, and I of anybody, saw him most, and so you know, we and he knew I was there to build a career in the theater, and so he and I would talk a lot. You know, and and engage a lot and and i felt comfortable asking questions the second is you you have to recognize if you're the assistant to a very senior person in a company or an industry or a trade group or whatever it is the calls coming in the, the i mean emails slightly different now because we don't see the emails perhaps but the letters coming in and all that were generally from very senior people in the industry other people you know and so through that i was able to build a bit of a network um the the documents that come in tend to be key business documents, whether they're financial reports or marketing reports or contracts. And so a person in that job shouldn't see themselves as I'm just the secretary or I'm just the executive assistant. If, If that's your interest, then you've got to say, wow, look at what I've got here. You know, I can talk to the head of Actors' Equity and I can talk to the head of the Directors' Guild and I've just got off the phone with the most important playwright in America, you know. Again you know you can't over, you can't sort of pretend that you are other than you are in the sense you know your role is clear but it doesn't stop you building a human relationship it doesn't stop you asking questions and and so my point is there's just an enormous amount to learn whatever role you play um and to your point you'll never know quite when you're going to use it but, um, no, you, but you, you you will you know
0: and it's also as you were pointing out there it's that network that you build along the way You know, it's just amazing what happens when you're just kind to people and help them out and how people actually do remember that down the road. And you never know where it's going to catch up. So I could talk to you forever. um, But um, I know your time is valuable. So I'd like to finish up with a quick lightning round of questions. Are you game if you're game? Again, I always say that someone's going to say one day. I'm going to
1: make one parting comment on the career thing, and maybe it's part of your lightning round. It's just I think what I've thought about this a lot is I think, you know, the, the advice you often hear is, you know, find your passion, pursue your passion. I disagree with that, by the way. I actually I think that is putting way too much pressure on young people because... Many of us have still not found our passion. Um, you know, I, I, I think that's not the right answer. The right answer is is about intellectual curiosity or just curiosity in general. I think you have to stay curious about the things around you, the things that motivate you, things that interest you, the things that appear to interest others. That's important. You know, if you can stay energized by, by curiosity, that will help because your careers will change, you know, your passion will will morph into something else or you know what you thought it was isn't quite what it was you don't want to be disappointed so you want to stay open and the second is about optionality so i think what i worry about is a lot of a lot of people making decisions, young people making decisions about career, are looking for something that's going to be the answer, you know, like, I, should I take X or Y, which is the better one, which, you know, which makes me the most successful person or which is the, you know, and I think that that's not typically how careers go, as you and I would probably say, is they they meander, you know, not not mindlessly, but they, they take different directions and circumstances change and you meet new people or things you find interesting or technology. So what you want to do is think about what I call optionality. So make choices. If you had two choices, if you had to choose between two things, take the one that appears to give you more future optionality. Yes. So it takes you into a new industry or allows you to start to explore some new skills or gets you into a group of people you've never had any contact with. You know, it's something that just sort of not just advances you, but gives you new forms of optionality and um, that you can build it. So th- those, uh, you know, increasingly are more my counsel for young people, certainly you know looking for the first job or the right job is is you know curious stay curious and uh, and think about optionality so
0: yeah no i love that and i love what you said about passion <laughs> because i think what happens is again people forget a sometimes you can be passionate about something and not very good at it right um and the other part of that is that you can find yourself in a place and you didn't know that you could be passionate about it. But can I be passionate about it? You know, when I got my first job is selling radio time, right. and it was country music radio, I thought, I, I just want the experience right now. I had no idea at that time that I was gonna fall in love with that industry. And I was passionate about it for so long, but it wasn't like I woke up one day and said, oh yeah, I'm, in, I'm passionate about, you know, selling airtime on a, a radio station. So I, I do think that you have to look at it like that too, but um, it's a, it's a different thing if you hate it, but not everyone is good at what they're passionate about. Right, right. And you're lucky if you can do both. So anyway, um, so let's finish up here with this quick little lightning round here. Your favorite social network? Uh, LinkedIn. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> Something people would never guess about you.
1: Um, I, I jumped out of an airplane uh, and parachuted for charity.
0: Wow, I would wow. No, I'm never jumping out of a plane unless the plane's going down and I have to. Um, the last series that you binged? Uh,
1: the Empress on Netflix.
0: Oh, I don't know about that. I have to check that out.
1: It's a wonderful, it's a German a German production all about the Austro-Hungarian Empire. It's sumptuous and beautiful and politically intriguing. It was really a good binge, a good binge.
0: Oh, okay. I'm going to add that to my list. A food you cannot live without.
1: A food I cannot live without. Uh, Right now, this is Special K for breakfast. That's uh, that's my go-to breakfast these days.
0: Okay, Special K. Um, (laughs) What you miss most about pre-COVID life?
1: I think that was sort of an innocence we had to some extent. Hard to say that during the political environment we were living in. But there was a slight innocence, perhaps. Uh, you know, we were all running into each other and and it didn't seem they would ever have any consequences. And now I think we're, you know, a little bit more guarded, perhaps, with each other. So. Mm-hmm.
0: Oh. And what motivates you to get up in the morning? Just a
1: wonderful set of people and ideas and things and places that um, I know I'm going to encounter. You know, I, I, I literally, I, I said wake up every day with what they used to call the tabula rasa, you know, a complete blank slate. And although I know I've got all these projects that I need to do, I usually greet the world and think, oh, you know, what does this day bring? And, um, you know, oh, that person just said, come over, or he just invited me to work on this, you know, piece book together. You know, it's, I, I, it's the idea, It's I, I guess the simple answer would be, you know, the opportunity, the manifold opportunities, that's what gets me up every day. The no, the notion that there's just so much out there to enjoy and, and contribute back to.
0: Thanks so much for listening to Marketing Mindfulness and Martinis. If you liked what you heard, please share with your friends. Give us a rating on iTunes or Spotify so other people can find us and hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode. If you've got a question you'd like answered or a topic you'd like me to cover, please drop me a note, info at joannetombracus.com. And until next time, remember, whatever got you to where you are isn't enough to keep you there.